But let's look in James chapter 2. Would you stand in honor of God's Word? We're going to look at more than what we're going to read today. But this morning we are going to just read verses 14 through 17. James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without getting, giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word today, counsel us through the word of God today. We can beseech the creator of the universe to speak into our hearts, speak into our lives today through your holy, inerrant, complete word that's without error. We don't have to guess. Is this right? Is this true? This is your word, and we stand on the authority of the word of God today, readying our ears, our minds, our hearts to hear what God would speak to us today. We pray in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Again, God bless you. Be seated. James, as we are in our study of James, we're calling this the gospel on the ground. We've been in this study for several months, taking a few breaks for... Easter and Mother's Day, but we're continuing to look and hear what James is, by the Holy Spirit, counseling us, giving us the word of what it means to be the real deal. What does it mean to not just profess Christianity, but what does it mean to live Christianity? What does it mean to not just be someone who has got a bumper sticker and a fish on their car, but someone who is living out The gospel. James has been working and is continuing to lead us as he is writing. James, as you remember, is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. History tells us that he's the half brother of Jesus, and he was the pastor of that local body of believers in Jerusalem. And he begins by addressing the scattered brethren there in chapter one because, as you might know from reading your Bible or maybe just watching AD, the TV series. How many of you are watching that? I don't know about you, but I think it's fantastic. I think they're doing a great job. And you know that the persecution of the early church was very intense, and it caused Christians to have to flee, leave businesses, leave families, leave homes. And so James is giving them, again, pastoral instruction. And here we come to this this passage, much longer we'll look at in verses 14 through 26, concerning authentic real Christianity. He's really been talking about this all along, but now he gets really specific of the difference between the real and the counterfeit. You've probably heard this illustration before, but my understanding that is those in the Treasury Department, when they want to uh, identify counterfeit money, they spend time examining in great detail the real thing so that when the fake comes along, They can spot it immediately. James is saying, I'm showing you what the real deal is, what authentic Christianity looks like. I want to show you the real thing and what and how that is expressed, how the gospel 
is lived out, the gospel on the ground, the ground, real life, where we live, how do we apply the truth of the gospel to everyday life? How do we apply it when we relate to one another? Is it relevant or is it just something we just sign off a creed and say, yeah, we believe that, but it has no impact on our life? James says it should have great impact on our life. It should radically change our life. And he brings us some reminders of this. Now, let me just mention this as... um, Because often this is a little, when people read this, they get a little confused because they'll read in Ephesians 2 when Paul talks about that you're saved by grace, right? And then you got James talking about works and they think, well, there must be some contradiction there. There must be some discrepancy there because Paul and James are not in agreement. Here you've got the Bible and already they're in disagreement. One is saying one thing and one is saying something different. Well, that's not exactly accurate. They're actually addressing the same issue, but from two different perspectives. When you read in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says that you're saved by grace through faith. He's addressing the issue of legalism that was prevalent to the people that he was writing that letter to. They had a propensity to equate that if I obeyed the letter of the law, that's how I became saved. That's what Paul is addressing in much of his writing in Ephesians and in Galatians, a gospel of grace. James, which James was the first letter that was attributed with what we have the New Testament, but it was the first letter that we, or the earliest written. James is not battling legalism. What James is dealing with is not legalism, but laxity of faith being lax, being lazy by not having a faith that is translated into action of life. He's not dealing with legalism like Paul is. He's dealing with more of a laxity of faith. James is countering the idea that it doesn't matter what you do as long as you believe. There is some of that thinking still within the church when we talk about grace that, well, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter how you act, as long as you believe the right things. That is contrary to the Word of God. Yes, it does matter what you believe, but it also matters how that belief is being translated into my actions, what I say, what I do, how I act. So there is not discrepancy there, but just consider they're dealing with two separate issues, but they're still in agreement. Paul... When he writes about grace, you're saved by grace, Paul is dealing with the root of salvation, what happens to me internally before God. James is focusing on the fruit of salvation, not the root, but the fruit of salvation and what happens on the outside. Is there evidence? Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. We have a lot. It's okay to be a fruity Christian. This morning, I want you to look with me at five areas here in this passage of what James, through the Holy Spirit, ways that we can know if we're living and we have the real deal, the real thing. Notice with me in verse 14, James writes, Real faith, he's talking about real faith is not something you just say, it's something you talk or, and, or something you talk about. He says, What good is it? Verse 14. What good is it, my brother, if a man claims to have faith but has 
no deeds. Can that kind of faith save him? So the first thing, observation this morning, is that real faith, and that's what we're talking about, is real faith is not just something you say. It's not just something you talk about. It, it, it doesn't say that the, this person, this fictional person that James is referring to in verse 14, it doesn't actually say he has faith or she has faith, but they just claim to have faith. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me in that day, speaking about a final day of judgment, not everyone who comes and says to me, picturing that day of judgment, Lord, Lord, remember that, Matthew 7? Not everyone who says the right thing doesn't necessarily have a relationship. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, he says, I never knew you. I never had any relationship with you. James is saying, talk is cheap. Not everybody who is a professor of Christianity is a possessor of Christianity. You with me this morning? Not everyone who just says, yes, I'm a Christian. You may have read or heard on the news about this research that says that, oh, Christianity is in decline in America. I would encourage you to go and read some other people that evaluate that. What they're observing isn't... The interesting thing that you didn't hear is that those churches that we would call evangelical, and that would include Baptist, Pentecostal, those that fundamentally believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that we stand on the truth of historic Christianity, what they didn't tell you is that those churches are on the increase. That the decline is in people that have a nominal or a just a, they're members of maybe a historical church that no longer are a part of that. But it's identifying people who are not just confessors of Christianity, but the possessors of Christianity, that group is actually growing. They didn't tell you that. You didn't hear that probably. But I encourage you to look at it. Real faith is not just something you say. Look at second observation in verse 15. Real faith is not just something you say. Real faith is also not something that you feel. It's more than emotions. Is emotions involved? You bet. Somebody who's had their life changed and taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, you better have some emotion. You better have some emotion. And I'm not talking about emotionalism, but I'm talking about emotion. God created us to be emotional people. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, when it gets emotionalism and it gets, you know, where the emphasis is just on the emotion, that's where things get out of balance. But we shouldn't be afraid as a church to allow emotions to be expressed. If you've ever engaged in worship and there had been a particular hymn or song that it was said and you found yourself with tears because it just reminded you of the wonderful grace of God and where He's brought you from. Man, you should let those emotions go. Now, there's some folks that just get emotion. They're emotional. They're just emotional people. You can take some unsaved country singer and up there singing Amazing Grace and we just, oh, we just... Crying away at that, but does that necessarily mean 
that that is an expression of a changed heart. It may or may not be. I don't know their heart. But just because you get emotional, listen, I've gotten emotional at a Leave it to Beaver episode. True? You've heard me say, you remember the movie, Don't Judge. You remember the movie, A Christmas Story? How many of you remember that movie? You remember when the dad says, what's that behind the TV? And the BB gun? I kid you not, every time I, you know why? Because that's stuff my dad would do. I get a mo, but there's no spiritual thing going on there. I'm just, you know. And she's looking at me like, I don't get it. (laughs) It's a dad and son thing, maybe. But real faith is more than just something you feel. Look at verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to him, hey, I wish you well. Hope you have a good day. But you don't do anything about their physical needs. James is saying, what kind of Christianity is that? I thought about a president who said, I feel your pain. Well, feel my pain, but help me get out of the pain. James is saying that's what real Christianity will do. It's more than just sympathy. And that's what he's talking about. Not not having emotions, but it's more than just a surface sympathy. Oh, isn't that terrible? Oh, we feel bad. where, Where are we eating tonight? Oh, isn't that terrible? Those children are starving. Are we going to Zaxby's or Chick-fil-A? See, that's, that's a surfacy false emotion instead of saying that, that the emotion moves me to take action at what I'm seeing and what I'm feeling. 1 John 3.17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need, but does not pity them, feel empathy, how can the love of God be in them? He would say a few verses before that in 1 John 3, 14, that one of the proofs of salvation, of somebody who's doubting whether they're in the faith, one of the proofs, John says that one of the proofs that is in the Bible that Jesus said and that John reiterates is that we will be known by our love for one another. If there's not love, then we should question whether we've truly had an experience of, with God, whether we've truly been changed and born again. We're good at verbalizing our faith. We're just not so good at always practicing our faith. We get stirred and riled up over causes, don't we? We get some Christians became more motivated and excited when Chick-fil-A was under attack than with some of the real needs that we're confronted with every day. Hello? Oh, we're ready to go on. Man, don't take my Chick-fil-A. Don't mess with the (laughs) Chick-fil-A. And yet, is that really... I'm not addressing that issue. I'm just saying, is that what it takes for the American church to to get to awaken? That you mess with our fast food? 
I know there's bigger issues behind it, but do you hear what I'm saying? Do you hear sometimes how shallow we are in the American church? I can't speak of everybody else around the world, but I'm afraid that in an American church, sometimes we are big on verbalizing our faith, let alone practicing it. Look at verse 17. James says, in the same way, faith by itself that is not accompanied, one version says, by actions is what? Dead. Not sick, but it's dead. It's dead. It's just something you say. It's something you just feel bad about, but nothing really changes. God says, I want you to feel strongly about the hurt, but I want that to motivate you to do something about it. Now, we can't do everything for everybody in every situation. I'm reminded of the story of a young man that was walking along the shore of an ocean, and he sees thousands, thousands, maybe millions of starfish that have been washed up along the shore. And he sees an old man walking, coming towards him. An old man is gently reaching down and picking up a starfish and throwing it back into the ocean one by one. And when the young man comes up on the, young, the older man, he asks him, why are you doing that? The old man says, well, the sun is up and the tide is going out. And if you don't throw them further out, these starfish will die. And the young man said, but don't you realize that there's miles and miles of ocean? There's thousands, millions. You can't save them all. It won't make any difference. And the old man bent over and he picked up another starfish and gently threw it out into the sea and says, well, it made a difference with that one. You can't do everything for everybody, but you can do something for someone. How many of you hear what I'm saying? You can do something somewhere for somebody. Maybe you can't give hundreds of thousands of dollars or even hundreds of dollars but you know what? It would be better. I think Jesus taught us, this, taught us this with the widow's might. It would be better to be consistent in giving the cups of cold water $5 a month than feeling like I can't do anything because I can't give them a lot of money. God honors the heart. He honors faith and the heart and being faithful in what you can do, but do something. And so James is reminding us that faith Real faith is not just something you say. It's not just something you feel. And then he says, real faith is not just something you think. It's not an intellectual thing. Look at verse 18. Someone will say, well, you have faith and I have deeds. Hey, you got your thing. I got my thing. You worship God your way. I worship God my way. You're into faith. I'm into works. Different strokes for different folks. But what does he say at the latter part of verse 18? Show me, and I would, if you write in your Bible, I'd just write that, circle that, show me. Show me, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Real faith is visible. Real faith is tangible. Real faith is something you can see with the way you live, with your lifestyle, with your priorities. Somebody said faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you sure can see the results. Some of us hear that too well. It's not an intellectual acceptance 
of the creeds of Christianity. It's not just an intellectual assent to right information. It's not just something you think. Uh, Paul would write this. Listen, listen in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anytime a person becomes a Christian, he becomes a new person inside. The old things have passed away. All things become new. It's not overnight. Change happens in different ways for different people, but change will occur. You grab hold of an electrical uh, wire with a current going through your body and you don't feel something, it's probably because you're dead. And so if you say that God has saved me, but nothing has affected your life, you're still the same mean old stingy snake you were before. You have to wonder, has there been any difference? I believe when God enters your life, you're not going to be the same. You're not going to be the same. Thank you. Someone asked this question. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The fourth observation is verse 19. Real faith, real faith that we're talking about, it's not something you say, it's not just words, it's not just something you feel, it's not just something you think, but fourthly, real faith is not just something you believe. Now, let me unpack that a minute. Look at verse 19. James says, oh, you believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons in hell believe that, and they shudder. There's some orthodox demons. They believe the right information. They believe there's one God. But just belief in the right information, James is saying, is insufficient if it's not connected to a change of heart. People miss heaven by 18 inches. That's roughly the distance between here and here. Because what they assent to intellectually has no change that's impacted their life and their heart. Acts 8, and I want you to look at a an example of this. I love good stories and illustrations, but to me the best illustrations is just when Scripture illustrates these things. And in Acts chapter 8, there's an example of what I'm talking about. Verse, chapter 8, verse 9 through 24. I'm not, I just want you to know where it is, and I wanted you to have something to do here midway, so I want you to... Okay. Luke reports that a number of people in Samaria, including a magician by the name of Simon, uh, referred to as Simon the Sorcerer, he believed that Philip, the Bible says, that Philip was preaching, he believed because Philip was preaching the good news about the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. Philip was preaching, he was an evangelist. Simon the Sorcerer heard it, he believed, he liked what he heard. And it says that, uh, that he was among those who were baptized, both men and women alike. And after witnessing various miracles and seeing that the Spirit was visibly bestowed through the laying on of the hands of the apostles, 
He saw that. He was impressed with that. And he asked Peter, his name is Simon, Simon the sorcerer. He asked Peter, the other Simon, the apostle Peter, Simon. He asked him, how much money do you need for me to learn how to do that? Now, there's a couple of things that don't have anything to do with this passage, but just notice that the evidence and the miracles of the Spirit were something that was visible. How would he know what was going on unless there was an expression of the Holy Spirit, whether it was spoken in an unknown tongue, language, something? He observed something visible. You hear me? You're with me? How would he have known unless he saw it? Okay? Just put that away in your file. And So he says, Peter, how much money do you need? I would want to do that. He says, give this authority to me as well so that everyone, this is the sorcerer, everyone whom I lay hands on may receive the Spirit. I want to do that. Show me that trick. This is what I want you to notice here. Look at what Peter said to him in verse, I think from verse 18. He said, may your silver perish with you. May your money go straight to hell with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart, don't miss that, pay attention to that, your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you as well. Now, why do I read that? Because we're talking about that real faith is not just something you believe. Simon, the sorcerer's belief, obviously was not salvation, but was merely he was just making a recognition of the miraculous of what Philip was doing, that it was true. There's a lot of people that you're not going to get a fight out of them by saying, yeah, of course I believe in Christianity. Of course I believe in the virgin birth and the cross. I mean, what do you think I am, a communist? Of course I believe all that. But just ascension to the facts does not translate into a changed heart. Okay? He was merely recognizing that what Philip said was true. His knowledge about God was correct, but Peter warned him and said, your heart was not right before God. Demons believe and shudder. And so Peter says that he had no part, this sorcerer had no part in the working of the Spirit, even though he witnessed it and was in agreement, his faith was dead and worthless. Go back to James 2. You hear what I'm saying? You see that illustration there? He was in full agreement, but something was missing. Real faith is not just something that you believe. The word there that when in the Greek where it says that the demons believe in shudder, S-H-U-D-D-E-R, that in the Greek that means to bristle. That's like the hair standing up on you. You know, when you have you ever watched something or been thinking about or something weird on TV or some movie or maybe you're into the Stephen King or whatever it is, craziness. And you read it because you just love that sensation of being scared out of your wits. You sleep with the light on. Let me tell you, quit reading that trash. That's not good for your mind. I'm just telling you pastorally, get that garbage out of your mind. 
But what I want you to hear is that's the word. They, it isn't that they just believe. They believe it. And the hair stands up on their back. I mean, they, they tremble. But James says, that's insufficient. That's insufficient. That's not real faith. And this is certainly consistent with the Old Testament. Remember in Deuteronomy 6, you may just make a reference to that. I'll, the Shema, which means uh, believe. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, remember the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Believe that. But the next verse says, you believe that? What the next verse says, Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, you shall Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You see the twin truths there? Belief, action. Action, belief. That's not a New Testament thing. That's as old as Scripture itself. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. You remember when Paul told Timothy, he said, watch your life and your, the old King James says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch how you live. Because how you live, folks, often is a evidence of what you believe. The reason some of you are playing around with deadly sin is because really, you just really don't, really, you're, you're kind of practical atheists. You might believe the creed that there's a God, but practically you really don't believe because the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning, the beginning of what? Wisdom. So you're playing around in lifestyles and actions and cheating and discrepancies and all these things and you think, hey, I'm still here, I'm still alive. Listen, you're, you're, the Bible calls you a fool. The Bible calls you a fool. You, you, you probably, maybe, I don't know, that's between you and the Holy Spirit, I'm just giving you suggestions here from Scripture. There may be a lack of evidence because there's been no change of heart. You like coming to church? You know, you gave up the Elks Club because you like Grace Church. They got better hours and better food. But that's kind of where it is. It's just kind of a good, we like, you know, we like everybody. Everybody likes me. It's all accepting, blah, blah, blah. That's not what the church is, guys. Yes, we have wonderful communion and fellowship with each other because we're just a collection of broken sinners that God has extended His mercy and grace to. But we're also, the church, are, the word ecclesia in the Greek means called out ones. What are we called out to? We are called out for God's pleasure. We're called out to be people that are loving and living for God. That's who we are. That's who the church is. When we only do that by the mercy and grace of God. And so real faith, real faith is not something you just believe. But the last observation here, those were all negative, but here's the positive. Real faith is something you do. And he gives us two illustrations in Scripture. He gives us two completely different people, Abraham and Rahab, exact opposite extremes. Abraham is a man, Rahab is a woman. 
Abraham is Jewish. Rahab is a Gentile, non-Jew. Abraham is a patriarch of the faith. Rahab is a prostitute. Abraham is a somebody. Rahab is a nobody. Abraham is a major character in the Bible. Rahab is a minor character in the Bible. And so James picks these two extremes to drive home the same truth, okay? So look at, see how he does this, okay? And, the, and he uses these illustrations of Abraham and Rahab, and the only thing in common, completely different, the only thing that they have in common is their faith in God. Their faith in God led them to action. That's what they have in common. That's, what, that's why James says, let me give you two examples, two opposite extremes. Let me give you the example of how their faith, what they believed, led to action, led to change. Verse 20, James says, You foolish men, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? His faith, look at these, this preaches itself. His faith and his what? Actions were doing what? Huh? Working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. Scripture was fulfilled when it said Abraham believed in God. Now what he's referring to is Genesis 22. Remember when God tested Abraham, and Abraham was already a believer, he was already a man of faith, but God tested his faithfulness. Uh, remember when God called him to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. God is not calling us to do that today, just in case you're lingering out there. That is not happening. That was a unique situation. Let me give you a little sidebar, okay? If you're going to study your Bible, pay attention to this. In the Bible, you have two things. You have prescriptive and descriptive. Say, so what does that mean? Descriptive, when we read about Abraham offering his son as a sacrifice before God, that's descriptive. That's describing a real historical event. That does not mean that is prescribing for you to go out and do the same thing. God called his people to march around the walls of Jericho till they came down. That's descriptive. That's not saying that real revival happens when we go out and do a Jericho march. You with me? Just because it describes something, it says David danced. Is that saying that we're to go out and dance in church? I don't believe so. That's not prescribing that behavior. So there's a difference there when it's describing something rather than saying go and do likewise. Just because the Bible gives an example of something is a far cry from saying this is how you should emulate. Now there are a lot of places in the Bible where it says and Jesus did this or the word does and you do likewise. You emulate. Remember when Paul was talking about sacrificial uh, living in Philippians 2. What example did he give? He said, just as Jesus gave all and sacrificed all, 
that should be motivating you to give. Paul didn't go back and refer to the tithe. He referred to Jesus. He said Jesus gave his whole life. So you want a you measure of giving? Jesus is our example. You with me? Abraham obeyed God. And of course, God interceded there. But what, what is illustrated is the fact that Abraham held nothing back from God. It was his action. It was his doing that proved or demonstrated his faith. Look at verse 24. Let me just highlight something else here. Because this gets a little confusing to some people. It says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That gets people a lot of confusion. As I said in the beginning, people think there's some contradiction there. That, well, wait a minute. Paul's saying we're justified by faith, and yet James is saying we're justified by works. What is it? Let me read you. Let me just share with you something that was helpful to me. How many of you know who Charles Swindoll is? Let me read you what he said. And he just, I think, makes this really clear. He said, the exam- he said that word to justify is the word in the, in the Greek, dikeo. He said there's two different nuances to the word depending on the context. When you study the Bible, context helps you understand what the Bible is saying. Just 101, Bible study. Know what the context is. So he says the way the word justified is used is determined often by the context of how it is being used. And he gives this example. He said the word can mean either to declare righteous. That's how Paul uses it in Romans, to declare righteous as in a legal proceeding where God has declared us justified before the throne of God. We are righteous and justified before God. It's a legal standing. It's a legal definition that we are not guilty before God. That's how Paul uses it. But here in James, what James is using the same word is that a person is justified, meaning that a person demonstrates his or her righteousness by actions observable to everybody. Paul and James pick up on the same two uses, or pick up on these two uses of the word justify, so that the same word is like two sides of a coin. One is used to declare our righteous standing, but the other one is that we are justified in showing that we demonstrate real faith by what we do. They're not in contradiction with each other. Paul, again, looked to the root of salvation. At the moment of salvation, you are saved through faith plus nada. Nothing. Nothing. That's where cults will hook you in. We'll say, oh, and then admirable, those Mormons, those Jehovah's Witnesses, they're so busy. Yeah, because they're doing it because they know that that working is how they attain going to heaven as they understand it. That if I don't work hard enough, I may not be acceptable for, before God. Newsflash, Jesus finished. The work. I rest in Him. Hebrews 4 says, He has become my Sabbath rest. As Christians, New Testament Christians, we do not celebrate the Sabbath because Jesus has fulfilled. He is our Sabbath. 
He is our Sabbath rest. Colossians says, why do you keep trying to worship through types and shadows when the reality is Christ? Okay? But then the other side of the coin, James is looking not at the root, but the fruit of salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I quoted earlier, Paul put these together. For you are saved through you're saved by grace through faith. It's not a work of your own, lest anyone should boast. But he says in verse 9, for we are his workmanship. Literally in the Greek, we are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Good works follow real faith. Martin Luther said, We are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. And of course he talks about Rahab as the second example. Rahab, what's so beautiful about Rahab is in Matthew 1.15, whose genealogy, whose family line is Rahab put right in the middle of? Messiah. He identified with sinners. You're scared to go on Ancestry.com. My dad used to say, I don't want to do that because you'd probably find out we're a bunch of horse thieves. How would you like to find out your great, 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 great grandmother was a prostitute? Jesus was not afraid when it says in John 1, he came and dwelt among us. That means he came and identified with sinners. Rahab demonstrated real faith by what she did when she opened and helped those spies who came into Jericho. She risked her life to save the spies there in Joshua 2. Our faith is not determined by what we do. It's not determined by what we do, but it is demonstrated by what we do. Big difference. Several years, maybe 50 years ago, there was a famous tightrope walker named George Blondin, who for a publicity stunt decided that he would walk across Niagara Falls. Others have done that on a tightrope. And on the appointed day that that tightrope was stretched across from one side of Niagara Falls to the other, from the American side to the uh, Canadian side, there was great crowds that had gathered to see this man do this feat. And so thousands of people showed up to watch Blondin walk to the edge of the tightrope, put one foot out on the tightrope, put another foot out, and he began to walk across inch by inch, inch, step by step. He got out in the middle, and everybody knew that if he'd make one mistake in balance, he'd fall off the rope, and into those falls of Niagara would be killed. So he reached the other side, and the crowd went wild, shouting and cheering, and He said, I'm going to do it again. So he did it again. He went across. And when he got to the other side, of course, crowds were going crazy. He said, this time I'm going to go across and I'm going to push a a wheelbarrow full of dirt. And kind of ramps it up a little bit. He pushes the wheelbarrow across and he got to the other side. And he did this nine or ten times of pushing this wheelbarrow full of dirt across this tightrope of Niagara Falls. And about the tenth time he was getting ready to push the wheelbarrow in front of a tourist. And the tourist said, I believe that you could do that all day. And Blondin emptied the dirt and he said, get in. (laughs) You believe that? Talk is cheap. 
This morning, James is counseling us of what Paul would write when he would write in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test, check it out. Because if these things that James is counseling us are not evidences in our life, then we need to stop and say, why aren't they? Maybe it's because we've gotten cold and callous and lazy. Or maybe it's because there's really never been any real change in our life. We need to ask ourselves. We need to allow the Spirit to do a spiritual autopsy on us if we have dead faith. If you're dead, you need an autopsy to determine what the problem is. We need to be sure. We need to be sure. God's grace can save to the uttermost. There's no limits to that grace. And that grace saves us. It changes us. It affects the way we think. Some of you were some of the most selfish people in the world. But when God changed you, something happened. You began to do things and have compassion on people and Look at people differently. Before you'd look at somebody and be critical and judgmental and harsh. And now because you know from where you came from and what God saved, you look at them and you have compassion, eyes with compassion. You remember in the Bible when Jesus, he looked upon, was it the, the beggar at the, the pool of Siloam? And he, it says and he had compassion. Or no, he looked out at the crowds. That's what it was. He looked out among the crowds, but I'm sure there was other examples too. And it says that he was moved with compassion. There's nothing worse, well, for maybe a few things, but nothing I think is worse than a Christian who claims to know Jesus that has become callous, cynical, bitter. Something's, something's wrong there. I know in my life, when I start to become callous, oh, pastors? Oh, no, I thought, you know, you all drink from a spring well that comes from Zion somewhere, and you are immune to all these things. Well, when you figure out that where that comes, you let me know, because I haven't found that spring well yet. But it's always a dangerous sign the Holy Spirit brings to my mind when, I, when my impulses are, you know, I don't have time for that. I don't want to, you know, they need to get their act together. I'm busy. I'm busy studying the Bible. How about live the Bible? How about live truth? Amen?